that uh, anyone, I think, honest would have. And Paul is quite honest at times over this issue. And so as we, as we think about, especially in a few moments, verse, verse 3, Paul is, is going to be wrestling with, well, what's my time been like with you? Have, and, and so we begin to learn that after Paul left Thessalonica and, and his own travails continued and presumably theirs did too, Paul be, became quite worried that uh, this congregation or the time that he had spent with them uh, had been an exercise in futility. In fact, he brings this up a few times, uh, but, but look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 1 for just a moment, and I'm going to spend some time thinking about structure and layout with you uh, uh, for a little bit too, but, but notice how he expresses this. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. Or if you look at chapter 3 in, a, in an important uh, section of, of this uh, letter that gives us uh, the, the real meat or background that, that forms the, the foundation of why Paul writes, he says there, wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. And what he means by forbear is he, he, he can't stand uh, not knowing uh, whether the Thessalonians are genuine believers. He can't stand anymore not knowing if the Thessalonians think that he was disingenuous with them, that he had, that he had uh, pulled the wool over their eyes and he had just been a complete fake, as I talked about this morning, a huckster. That's what he's, he's worried about. And so Paul evidently gets to the point where he can't stand it anymore and the psychological turmoil is, and weight is so heavy on him that he thinks it good to be left at Athens alone, verse 2 of chapter 3, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you, that is to, to shore up your faith and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we uh, are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know, for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Paul is, is concerned about whether his time spent in Thessalonica was futile. Was it empty? Did it accomplish anything? And so he, before writing this letter, this is part of the reason that he was willing to be left alone at Athens. You can see that in the book of Acts. He wanted assurance about what had happened in Thessalonica. He wanted to make sure that everything was in, in good standing, that the, his relationship with the Thessalonians was one where, where they viewed him favorably, where he could know that they were continuing in the faith, and that would give him some peace of mind that he hadn't wasted his time with them. 
And that backdrop is important because what Paul does in the early sections of the letter is he begins to develop what it is about the Thessalonians that gave him peace of mind that his time there had not been futile or empty, that it had been worthwhile. And so what he begins to do is to reflect back in, in a kind of joint memory as he writes. He's going to, uh, to express some things that uh, wherein, excuse me, he's, he's thinking back on his time among the Thessalonians. And he wants them to think back on his time with them too. So that we get a kind of movement back and forth between Paul's memories of them and things that have given him encouragement about them. And then he's going to call upon them to remember what they saw in him when he was there. And he's going to ask them to think upon what they know about his time with them. And through reflecting upon what they know about their time together, he wants to assure them that they have ample evidence to know that he was acting in good faith, that he was preaching honestly, that it wasn't just an act of fakery and trickery, that he was there preaching the gospel because he truly believes the gospel, and they have all kinds of, of indications, real-world evidence, that he, too, was acting in good faith. Now, I hope that's somewhat clear and not too complex, but that's, that's going to take up, really, uh, three-fifths of the chapters of this book. Is Paul just letting the Thessalonians know of his concern about them and what it is that gave him peace of mind that there had been fruitful time. Now, these things are not always so easily measurable. But in the case of the Thessalonians, because of their continued persecution, they had immediate or real world and real world consequences. Paul could learn of them, he could reflect on them, and he could know, all right, well, there is every indication that suggests to me that you guys truly converted. And so now that brings us to, uh, to consider as a, a kind of overall umbrella topic, what are the evidences of genuine belief that would give, say, someone like Paul, who had spent time preaching, some peace of mind and some reason to thank God that he hadn't wasted his time with these people. And so let's look at what he has to say in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. And we'll have to deal with that sentence because the King James Version doesn't deal with it in the way in which it is given in Paul's group. So we first encounter Paul 
opening this letter in its main content by expressing thanksgiving to God. Now, this will become a kind of convention for Paul. If you go back and you read the letters of Paul, nearly all of them begin with Paul saying something akin to these phrases to whoever it is that he writes to. He expresses his thanksgiving to God for them, and he tells them that he expresses this thanksgiving when he uh, makes mention of them in his prayers. Now, we know that this is Paul's first letter, and so this had not yet become a convention. Uh, and by merely expressing that it's a convention, we might also then say, well, Paul doesn't really mean it. That he is just saying, I thank God or we thank God for you in the same way that if you were to ask me how I'm doing and I say, well, I'm fine, you don't, you know, that's just a convention that I may feel terrible and achy and, and I may feel dizzy and ready to pass out and I'd still tell you I'm fine. Uh, and so that's just a, a way of being polite. But Paul is not going for mere convention here. This is not, these are not niceties. In other words, he really means that he gives thanksgiving to God for the Thessalonians. And uh, so it is important that we understand that he is not merely being uh, gratuitous. And the main thought here that Paul expresses to them, at least for now, is we are thanking God. That is the core concept. We will not get another core concept that is an actual sentence with subject and verb. We don't get another sentence until verse 6. So that the main idea for at least a brief paragraph of this very small letter is just we are thanking God. And then around that core concept, Paul is going to structure some things that will inform the Thessalonians why it is that he gives thanks to God for them, when it is that he gives thanks to God for them, and very importantly for thinking about the end of the letter, particularly chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul is going to express in, in, in a repeated way how frequently he gives thanks to God for them. Now, let's just dwell for just for a second upon the importance of being able to be thankful to God. I know this sounds simple, and it's something that in recent years I've begun emphasizing and repeating. So, in that vein, I do apologize for the repetitiveness, but this is a key biblical concept. One of the things that, that indicates that we are believers and one of the characteristics, therefore, of believers is our ability to be thankful to God. And to be thankful to God, one, for who He is, but also to be thankful to God uh, for other aspects of His creation that continue to sustain us, 
Or here, Paul doesn't express thanksgiving for things, but rather he expresses thanksgiving for people. So that the Thessalonians become a, a reason for Paul to be thankful and to express his thanksgiving to God. Another uh, element of this, another subpoint of this, would be to, to say this, that one of the purposes of prayer, shall we say, one of the, one of the minimal things that we can do in, in having a consistent prayer life, being involved in that, in that activity, is just the ability to go to God and to express thanksgiving to Him. And the reason that this is such a significant concept or idea is because Paul in particular in Romans 1 expresses that what fallen man is incapable of doing is, is just mustering the ability to be thankful to God for His own existence and for the fact that, that He created. So that Paul could say that human beings are not thankful. We're not thankful to God. But a characteristic of believers is that we look at, we understand the truth to such a, a degree, or we should, that we know that we have ample foundation to offer thanksgiving to God as a matter of consistent practice. And that that thanksgiving can be for one another, as well as for who God is, not merely for the things we have. In fact, Paul is able to be thankful to God for the Thessalonians, even while he continues to experience suffering and tribulation for his faithfulness to carry out his apostolic responsibilities, and also while they continue to face suffering as well. So that thanksgiving to God transcends our immediate circumstances. So Paul says, we are thanking God. Something simple, something basic, and yet something profound. Right? Now, Around this main idea, or this core idea, are really three points. They're Paul's points, not mine. But, and thankfully, they're his, and it makes it easier for me. All right. Number one, around Thanksgiving, what he tells them is, is how consistently he offers Thanksgiving to God for them. How consistently does he do this? Well, that is expressed in the term always. So he says, we are thanking God always about you, concerning you, he says. So, and, and then always doesn't mean that Paul walks around and, and there's never a moment where he's not thanking God for the Thessalonians. Instead, what is meant is that Paul has this consistent practice that is conveyed both in the form of the verb that he uses, but more importantly, in this adverbial that he uses, and 
He uses two different adverbs to express this so that around this, I, this thought of giving thanks to God, we have uh, this, all right? So if we keep reading, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. And, and actually, if you look at verse 3 for a moment, that term that's translated without ceasing is, is up for debate about where it goes because it's actually stuck between, uh, strategically stuck between uh, two of these ideas that Paul is, is using to, to flesh out the, the thought of him giving thanks to God. So that we could understand the second adverb, without ceasing, actually to go with the previous sentence or, we, uh, or, or idea, or we could understand it as the King James Version has expressed it, to go with the memory. In other words, regardless of how we look at it, Paul expresses on the front end, we are giving thanks to, to God always about you. And then, as he closes out this first idea or thought around that core thought, he says that he does this incessantly or without ceasing. So that we have a kind of bookend that, that notes the consistency and the frequency with which he gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians. And then the third thing to think about, just on the base, of, you know, around these terms, is that Paul's own consistency in praying for the Thessalonians could be looked at as a kind of model that he is going to give the Thessalonians later in the letter in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where he gives them the command to pray without ceasing. So that what Paul is involved in is praying without ceasing, the giving of thanks to God always. And he is someone who actually practices what he preaches so that the Thessalonians learn from the very beginning of the letter that Paul's prayers for them are consistent, that they are frequent, that he does this as a matter of habit, and it's upon his own practice as well as their own need that Paul then enjoins them at the end of the letter to be in the habit of praying without stopping. That is, don't, don't stop praying. Don't get to the point where you actually stop, and we'll talk about what that means at the appropriate time. But it's very important to Paul in the letter that the Thessalonians see him as someone who doesn't just spew ideas, but who actually practices what he preaches. And in the matter of prayer, for the Thessalonians, he does this always. He does it without ceasing. All right, now, We'll say, well, when, when does he give thanks? Well, he gives thanks always, but his thanksgiving took place during his habit, he says, of making mention of you in our prayers. 
So that the Thessalonians now are assured that Paul views them favorably, that he is thankful to God for them, for who they are. They now know that Paul is in the habit of, of remembering them when he prays. Now that's, a, that's an interesting idea too. And one that I thought of this week as I was thinking through some of this for the final time before coming to talk about it. We, we even have that habit, right? It's an expression of ours. So would you remember me in your prayers? And that's exactly the phrase that Paul uses because to make mention is based upon, one, the verb for to make. It's in participial form here. And then Paul expresses mention, and the word mention is actually a noun that is based upon the verb for to remember something or someone. So that as Paul is involved in thanking God, what we should, what we should then come to understand is that he was in the habit of remembering the Thessalonians before God as he prayed. And when he remembered the Thessalonians before God, when he made mention of them, he thanked God for them. Alright, so that really gives us our first section here. Uh, of Paul developing the thanksgiving to God as he expresses his consistency and then lets the Thessalonians know that he was in the habit of making mention or a remembrance of them in his prayers. But it's in verses 3 and 4 that we really find uh, the foundations for his thanksgiving. So we might ask the question, well, why is Paul really thankful to God about the Thessalonians? What is it about them that, is, is, that gives him a reason to come before God and to remember them when he comes before God and to thank God for them? Right? And, and another way to, uh, to push a little bit deeper into this thought is this. Paul's thanksgiving to God was not without foundation. It was not just empty thanksgiving. There's, there's something real in the real world about the Thessalonians that, that Paul knew about them. And then after knowing it about them, it was a cause for him then to come and to thank God for them. So again, he's not just expressing empty words and saying, I just want you to know, I thank God for you, uh, and every now and then I remember you in my prayers. And the Thessalonians are you know, just supposed to kind of, well, that's a good relief, and we're, we're so glad that you undertake that. No, what Paul, what Paul wants them to know is that there's evidence that he knows about them. There's, there's something that's, that's been demonstrated that he has looked at and then has become the foundation for his thanksgiving to God. And, and the evidence, and therefore the foundation, uh, the, 
that leads to his thanksgiving to God uh, is also what has given him or contributed to him having peace of mind about his time among the Thessalonians. So this brings us to, to, to think about well, what is the evidence of fruitful preaching? What is it that Paul has thought of, has remembered about his time in Thessalonica that not only then becomes the foundation for his thanksgiving for them, uh, but that, that also informs him or gives him a reason uh, to think that he had not wasted his time with these people. Well, that evidence is expressed in verse 3 and then gets driven home in a kind of blunt and often misunderstood statement in verse 4. So let's look at what Paul says in verse 3 as we now really get into the, the uh, participles that express well, why it is that he gives thanksgiving to God for them. So here's what he says. Remembering your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, our Father. I promised earlier that I would get to some process, though that is some structural issues, and I'll just refer to them very briefly. Here, in verse 3, we can see that Paul expresses that he remembers something about the Thessalonians. And then, what he is going to, to begin to do in verse 5 is to shift back and forth between his own memory and recounting the history of his time with them and the ramifications that it had for him as he moved beyond Thessalonica. And then, as you can see in verse 5, he introduces something about himself so that he says, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. You will begin to see, I think, as we go through this letter, that Paul will make a habit out of shifting very briefly. And, and he'll say something and then he'll say, just as you know, we came to be in a certain way among you. So he says, I remember this, and I reflect upon this, and then you know this about me. So that he's going back and forth about, here's what I remember about you, and I want you to recall what you know is true about me. So right now, we're in a, a section where Paul is, is reflecting upon the Thessalonians and why it is that he gives thanksgiving to God for them. And so what he recalls, what he's in the habit of recalling about the Thessalonians is their work of faith, their labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have to begin to wrestle with what Paul has in mind here. Incidentally, uh, this triad work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope, with some sort of variation, 
gets echoed in Revelation. In Revelation 2 and 2, in the letter to the Ephesians, and in Revelation 2 and 19, which is memory serves as the letter to uh, Thyatira. I probably have gotten that wrong. Uh, but but we, we see these types of triads that get repeated in, in Revelation and 1 Thessalonians alone. We are accustomed, though, to Paul making some sort of reference to or tying together the all-important spiritual attributes of faith, hope, and love. And here, he ties faith, hope, and love with work, labor, and endurance. So let's talk a little bit, or let me flesh out for you just a little bit, what Paul more than likely has in mind. What Paul recalls, first of all, is a single thing, not three things, really. In other words, these three things, work of, of faith, labor of love, patience of hope, while they form a triad, Paul really is thinking about one holistic thing, is how I would describe it. And all of and that holistic thing is related to the demonstration of faith, the demonstration of their love, and the demonstration that they actually do share the certainty that Jesus is coming again. Paul phrases this as a work, as a labor or a toil, and then as endurance. What is he getting at? Here's what I think he has in mind. And I think chapter 3, as I've already referred to, bears this out. Paul looks to the evidence of the continued obedience of the Thessalonians, their continued association with Jesus Christ, and their continued association with Him, their continued love for Him, he looks at the evidence of their continued obedience as proof that he had not wasted his time with them. Alright, so say, well, how do we get there? Alright, a couple things. Number one, it's not a work of faith, most likely. Instead, the work, the labor, and the patience all come from the source of what is tied to it. So that what Paul has in mind is that there is work that is that bears out, that bears evidence of their faith. There's, there's proof of faith. And their work comes from that faith so that their work is evidence of the existence and continued presence of that faith. Secondly, their labor comes from love. And we can understand labor in the context of the letter really in two legitimate ways. We can, uh, we can understand labor as their willingness to continue to work 
and to feed themselves, to care for themselves, to care for one another, and that that is motivated by their love and evidences their love, or more than likely, because of the term that's translated labor and the way it gets used frequently in the New Testament, what Paul probably has in mind, I would think, the higher probability is that he has in mind thinking of living life as a believer in the world as an exhausting, toilsome experience. And the concern can be, and he will express this in chapter 5, the, con the concern can be that the believer would become over-exhausted and would faint. But life as a believer in the world is not easy. And it's never portrayed as easy or simple. Instead, it is exhaustive uh, or exhausting. Sorry, I've got to get the ending right here. It means something different. It's not total. It's, it's tiring. And if you think about the conditions in which Paul and the early churches uh, and, the, and the early apostles, the conditions in which they live, of course they would look at it that way. They didn't, they didn't live in luxury. They, didn't, they weren't free to practice their, their uh, Christianity out in the open and in public. Being a believer in Jesus Christ brought with it, uh, over time especially, the threat of, of the loss of, of social standing, the ability to make a living. It brought with it the threat of imprisonment, beating, and even death. So that being a believer in Jesus Christ, and this is why this is all relevant, being a believer in Jesus Christ for them was not an accessory or a luxury. It wasn't something that you did on the weekend. Instead, if you converted to believe in Jesus as Messiah and Lord, this changed all of your relationships. Jesus got at this too. What, what did he come to do? He came not to bring peace, but a sword. And to bring division where? In your family. That, that's where he took it. it. I sever the most intimate, foundational relationships that you have. Especially if your family doesn't share your trust in who I am. And then we know as the apostles went through the, the cities of the Greco-Roman world and began preaching the gospel, we know what the reaction to that in that world was. You had to make a real decision. And Paul gets at that in verse 4. And what came with that decision was you were going to have to be willing to endure a hard, difficult, tiring existence to be a believer in Jesus Christ in that world. Now what would motivate someone to do that? To endure all of that. And in the midst of opposition and hostility, what would motivate someone to, 
to continue to obey, which is what he means by work. And no doubt what he also means by toil. What would keep you doing that? Genuine belief, genuine trust in the truthfulness of the message and consequently in the truthfulness that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Absolute persuasion. So that your life lives out that it is, it is completely based upon the, reality, the, the, the fact that you trust that that is reality. It reorients the life. And it orients you toward living in obedience to God even when man is demanding that you stop obeying God and you obey them. What would motivate someone to experience toil, love, and not, not merely love for one another, but the, the most important love, that is love for God. We come to, to God through Jesus Christ not merely for the transaction of, 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 of having you know, fire insurance for, for all eternity. That's not why we come to God. And, and coming to God through Christ is supposed to produce in us genuine love and devotion toward God so that we trust Him completely. He is our highest priority of love. And what is the evidence that we love Him, incidentally? What's the evidence that we trust Him? We obey Him. We love Him even more than we love the simplicity and ease that's possible for our own lives. So that faith and love become not just motivators to you know, make us kind of feel good, like, sorry, they were talking about it beforehand, but like if Jerry would, were to train Jeff and exercise, he would be motivated him, right? Kind of push him on, but we're not, you know, we're not talking about just psychological help here, but something that's deep and genuine so that there is the evidence in our lives that we truly trust God and that trust is genuine because there's a change in the way we live. There's a change in our sense of priority. We love Him. And we love Him supremely. This is what He calls for. What did, what did the Lord teach Israel in Deuteronomy 6.4? What did Jesus say is the highest commandment? You will what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The totality of your being must love Him. And if it doesn't, love Him completely. And where he is the highest priority, what does the New Testament teach us about our obedience, our willingness to endure suffering, tribulation, and the complexities of life? Not very likely, unless there is that genuine love and trust in him. And then along with that, this is the word that would seem to put frame all of this, in the context of tribulation, Paul says, your endurance 
for hope. It's translated as patience, but the word is endurance. And this is, this is that term. You see it in Romans 5. You see it in James. We see it in 1 Peter. We see Paul write about patience in Galatians 5. <clears throat> but this is a term that gets used in noun and verb form almost 100% of the time to refer to one thing in the New Testament. The New Testament writers take this term and it has almost one exclusive meaning. In fact, I cannot think of a single time where it doesn't have this meaning. It's about the only word that has that, 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 that is this way. So that <coughs> patience or endurance refers to the act of obeying God and being faithful to Him in the midst of tribulation, persecution, and suffering. And again, well, what would make someone bear up under all of that, endure persecution and suffering, not in their own name, but in somebody else's name? What would motivate that? What would, what would produce that? And of course, the answer here is hope. The certainty of the return of Jesus, which Paul is going to write about at the end of verse 10. In fact, look at verse 10. As he, uh, as he talks about uh, the evidence that there was a fruitful entering in among them when he was there. He says, for they themselves, this is people in Macedonia and Achaia, show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now notice this, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. We know he's going to feature that also in chapter 4. He's going to talk more about it in chapter 5. But here is the hope of believers. We are future-oriented. We, we know. right? We don't know the future except in one regard. Jesus is coming again. And we know to anticipate that. We know that it is a certainty that he is going to return. And we know that it's a certainty that he is going to return because of his own resurrection, because of his ascension. But even beyond all of that, or upon all of that, God has promised that he will come again. Jesus promised that he will come again. And so no matter what may happen to us in this life, what we are taught to do is to endure our present sufferings for Christ now, knowing that we have the certainty of the return of Jesus and of God's, uh, God's righteous judgment in the future. And so here's what Paul is remembering. Here's what he reflects upon. This is part of what gives him assurance that my time with you was not in vain. In fact, I thank God for you. And I thank God for you remembering, remembering that there was evidence of your faith, evidence of your love and hope, in that you bore up under those tribulations and you remained faithful and obedient to the truth and to Jesus Christ even with all of that pressure being brought to bear on him. 
There was something that comes only from God that enabled you to be obedient while facing all of that from your fellow countrymen. And I remember that about you. I thank God for you. This is what, this is what gives me some sense that I didn't waste my time with you. And then the other point with that, that is Paul's own point, point three around that idea of, of thanking God and, and remembering, is he says in verse four, knowing that is since we know, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, the King James Version was made in the 17th century. Anybody want to look at verse 4 and just take a wild guess at what one of the hot doctrines might have been at the time and what was influencing the way people thought? It was, of course, the same hot doctrine of today. What goes around comes around. It, it uh, died out for a while or seemed to, and, and now all of a sudden it's, it's kind of like the charismatic or Pentecostal movement in the early 90s. It seems to be everywhere. And that, of course, is the doctrine of Calvinism. But in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul does not say, knowing that, brethren beloved, your election of God. Instead, what we do have is a passive voice participle that describes the Thessalonians. They... Paul says, since we know, brothers, ones having been loved by God. In fact, those are all together. Now, a passive voice verb usually calls for an agent, someone who does the action. In this case, having been loved. And then you would ask, okay, having been loved by who or what? And then there's a way to express agency in Greek, just like we would use the word by. They would use the word hupo, which we use for like hypoglycemic when your blood sugar is low. Or in Latin becomes sub. Alright, so Paul describes the Thessalonians then as once having been loved by God. That's not what he knows. What he says he knows is your, and then it's translated election. What do we do when we have an election? It's an old, old word. But what do we do when we, we have an election? We make a decision. We make a decision. We make a choice. The Greek word is just choice. So what Paul says is, we know, brothers, ones having been loved by God, and he, he's describing them as having been loved by God to assure them that their present circumstances and tribulations are not indications that God has abandoned them, that he doesn't love them. They are ones having been loved by God in the past. That continues to be true in the present. But what he's getting at, is the decision the Thessalonians made in the face of the opposition that they faced, that is, they were subjected to, 
to be obedient, to endure those sufferings, to be tired out, if you will, because they believed the gospel that Paul preached was true. It was real. And so Paul has reflected upon this evidence and verse 3 or excuse me, verse 4 is a participle since we know that probably expresses or most likely expresses the, the end result of Paul's memory of their faith, hope, and, and love. Or their faith, love, and hope. What is that? Why? Well, I, I looked at your obedience, your endurance, and from that, I know, I've seen, and thus we know, the choice you've made. We thank God for the choice you made to evidence that you believe the gospel we preached was not the word of men, but was the very word of God. And so I'm thankful for the evidence that I have, thankful to God for who you are. And I'll leave you to just kind of sum this up with ending, ending where we began. Meaningful preaching should lead to evidence of obedient behavior, even under worst, the worst of extreme conditions. But also, I think, from a pastoral perspective, the real evidence that your time with a people has been worthwhile and not futile is when you can see in a congregation not just increased knowledge of the scriptures, but a commitment to live obediently to God, whether times are good or whether times are not good. And Paul found some comfort in the evidence of the obedience of the Thessalonians. I hope that we are an obedient congregation. I hope that you find our time together is one where you grow, where you're challenged to think about the meaning of the Word of God, but I also hope that it's not just an academic exercise, that as we learn of God and as we learn of His will and what He wants of us, that that translates into real-world evidence of obedience so that others can see through the way that we live the genuineness of our claim to faith and love in God, but also the, the genuineness of our trust that God's Word is true. Thank you very much for being here tonight. I appreciate your presence. I do ask you now to join me in standing. We'll proceed looking at uh, uh, Ruth chapter 1 on Wednesday night. I hope to see you there as part of that study. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day that we've had and the liberty that we have had to meet together and to worship you together, to study from your word. We thank you for access to your word that you've given us, and we pray that we would not take having your word lightly, but that we would give it its full weight and authority, that we would long to hear from it and learn of it, we would learn to live in obedience, evidencing our commitment 
to living under your authority and our recognition of your authority. Father, we want to express our thanksgiving to you for our church and for the fellowship we have. We pray that, it would con that our fellowship would continue to grow, that we would continue to benefit from our mutual uh, obedience to you and our, our mutual growth in your attributes. We thank you for Jesus Christ and for his obedience to the point of death. We thank you for his resurrection that completed the work of reconciliation, forgiveness, redemption, and righteousness. And we pray that we might look forward to his return by living in obedience to you now. We ask prayer for our nation and for those who lead our nation. And we pray for all men that they might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Help us to be witnesses of the truth as we have opportunity. And may others come to be saved through the lives and preaching of the members of this church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.